And if I tell an athlete to gallop, but be as quick off the ground as possible, they find it a lot easier than they do the power skip with much briefer ground contact. So gallop has been a little bit easier way to introduce it, maybe a little bit easier way to just introduce some of those manipulations. I think because of the gallop, like one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, whereas skipping is a little bit longer. um, It's a little bit longer of a time frame on the ground. That was John Garish. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for being here. And I'm excited to get you all this show. I love talking about concepts found within the sport of track and field. I think that we talk a lot about things like the symbiosis of track and field and American football. And within track and field, there is a lot of different disciplines. You have anything from the shot put and discus to sprints to triple jump to hurdles. And of course, we have the distance events, which I think a lot of people, if you say track and field, that's where their mind goes. But anyways... There is so much interplay between the skills, I should say the explosive skill that's found within track events and then that gift that can be given to other sports. And to help us explore that today is strength coach and track coach, John Garish. John is the director of athletic development at North Broward Prep School in Coconut Creek, Florida. He is their strength coach, their track coach. He was recently voted the 2022 National High School Strength Coach of the Year by the National High School Strength Coaches Association. He was previously on this show discussing his speed training approach all the way back on episode 182. If you keep up with John on social media, you can see he's always posting this mindful, intelligent, and intuitive approach to the populations he works with. John is a coach who walks the talk. He's doing these bounding, these skipping, these galloping progressions in his own training. And he has a background as a football player and hammer thrower, so a a weight guy doing these elastic things to help him serve his athletes better. The first question, actually, he'll be getting into that. So don't want to steal that thunder. But on the show today, John will be talking about elasticity, gallops, skips, bounding progressions in the athletes that he works with. So looking at middle school up through high school and then the speed camp populations. John is a guy who, uh, and throwing hammer, that is a reflexive event. You look at Akibwe Johnson, the Dow with a hammer, talking about that relationship that you have with that implement where you can't just muscle it, you can't just force it. That is that thing that we can see in so many of these track and field events, and we can dig out those elements and give that as a gift to all athletes. And John's doing that in the form of skips and gallops, etc. Don't want to waste any more time on this description. There is so much good stuff in this show, and John is brilliant, great guy to talk to, and we can all learn a ton from his thought process. Before we start the show today, I just wanted to highlight two sponsors quickly, and then we'll be off. First is simplyfaster.com. They have been with us since the very start. If you have sports technology needs, you want timing systems, force plates, blood flow restriction, velocity-based training, inertial training, check out their online store. They have something that is going to help you out. They also have an awesome informational blog, and we really appreciate them as sponsors, so be sure to support them. Second is the Elastic Essentials online course. It represents years of my own work, coaching, and integration. It's 12 hours of video, bonus features. It gets you CEUs for certifying organizations, and the feedback has been amazing. So be sure to check that out. If you get a chance, you can head to justflysports.com, click on the Elastic Essentials course banner, and you can read more about it there. With that said, let's get to this excellent talk with Coach John Garrish. John, awesome to have you back on the show, man. You've been doing a lot with skips and bounds that we'll be getting into throughout the course of today's show. I'm curious, before we get to all that, 
I've seen you doing like going through the bounding yourself, teaching yourself those movements and those different types of plyometrics and things. And I'm curious, what do your own what do your own workouts typically look like? I mean, in terms of the bounding, the skipping, sprinting, what is a daily or weekly training session in the life of John Garrish? Well, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to kind of fit in the, the, the schedule of the day, the itinerary of the day. Generally, throughout the summer, times are either early in the morning and then I have a full training day as far as sessions go, or maybe it's in the evening when the school year's in session, which we just started last week. It, I'm, I'm generally trying to get my training in during the lunchtime. So when we are in school, the weight room generally is the place that I can keep students out of during lunch. Not always. I mean, sometimes they want to train during lunch or I want them to train during lunch, but generally that's my time to train. So I'll get in there and it'll be a lot more uh, weight room oriented in the summer months or in uh, the other months of break. I'll probably be more outdoors related. And the sole reason for that is I don't really like being on a high school, middle school, preschool elementary school campus and be out training when parents are going around and students are going around. That's just kind of my personal, personal deal. So I'll do a lot of my training in the morning. That'll still include, or in, in the weight room and during lunch periods. And that'll still include a lot of those skips, hops, gallops, bounds, again, kind of more strength driven too, as far as what I'm doing under load, you know, for the skips, hops, gallops, bounds, that has, that started for me you know that was always something even as an athlete that some of my coaches used i think that's probably why a thread of it has stayed in my workouts to this point but especially once i started coaching the horizontal jumps especially triple jump because triple jump was not an event that i ever did so i did realize that i had this hunch that certain things were going to help triple jumpers and also you know whether it be learning from various coaches across the country across the world hearing them give some triple jump cues or hearing them give some bounding cues. And the fact of the matter was I had never really done much of that in my own training. So I had to learn it myself. If I were to able, and I think last time we had spoke, I spoke a lot about my cueing strategies, my feeling of my biggest struggle as a coach being able to verbalize what I want our athletes to hear or feel. So if I didn't have the ability or at least have the comfort to be able to demonstrate or do some of these movements myself, I felt as though there was no way I could verbalize it to our athletes. And I felt as though there was no way that I could even find lesser cues or, or a tactile cue or whatever it may be to be able to help the athletes feel it as well. I was just kind of spinning my wheels. So that's been a really important part of my training program. If not for, I'm not competing in triple jump on Saturdays. I'm not looking to sprint and meets, at least at this point in my life. It's just been an important piece for me to uh, be able to coach our kids, to be able to feel it, say it, demonstrate it if I have to. But generally, you know, it's it's the, the queuing strategies have set up in a way that I haven't really had to demonstrate. Sure, I have those videos that they can see and relate to. But again, I just wanted to be able to do that so that I can speak to our kids on it. Yeah, I suppose if there was some sort of, not that this would ever happen, maybe it would, but like state of Florida, strength coaches, triple jump competition, you would be like probably top three for sure, I'd imagine though. I hope so. I'm not so sure though. There's some good ones out there. There's some good ones out there for sure. But I, yeah, I would, I, that would be fun actually. Actually, it would be fun in the, in the moment, but I don't know if the, uh, <laughs> I don't know if the athletic trainers at those various schools would be happy with us doing that because they'd probably be busy after the fact. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's uh, I know. Yeah, man, bounding. It's it's definitely the um, high level management of forces. That's for sure. And uh, sure. It's, yeah, and managing collisions. Yeah. John, I'm I'm curious. You know, this is an interesting uh, thought I had, and and this plays off of uh, what we kind of finished with talking about last time you were on the podcast. And I found all these hand positions you were using with your athletes, like when they were doing sprints over wickets and things, and you were looking at how it might have changed the way the feet interacted with the ground as the the hands and the feet have a link. But I'm curious on your thoughts on hand position in young athletes versus older ones. I know you work with a spectrum of ages, young athletes up to seniors in high school. And one thing I've noticed, uh, this is the last thing I'll say is, I've, uh, there was a video, it was uh, someone's like uh, posted on YouTube, it was like their eight or nine year old girl just destroying the field in the 100 meter dash by like, I don't know, three or four seconds or something. And this kid, the, the thing that stuck out to me so much was her hands were like, her fingers were just straight, splayed and rigid. Basically, if you just extended all your fingers and then made them as wide as you could, that's what her hands were basically looking like the whole race. And I have this feeling like I see that more in kids than I do in like, if you look at like the men's 100 meter final in the Olympics, you don't see that. And maybe in a few athletes, you know, like, a, like Andre de Grasse comes to mind a little bit or Johan Blake back in the day. But anyways, I'm just curious on your thoughts on that hand position in younger athletes who maybe they haven't developed like the muscle yet and thoughts on that as they athletes get older and start to change as they put on more uh, weight and muscle and as they grow and mature. Yeah, we talked a little off air. I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to ramble on this just because I'm going to get the thoughts out there. But I certainly have seen that. I've seen that in the in the youngest, at least youngest, like competition age. So saying from, I mean, you can compete as young as as you want, really. Down here, if you can walk, you can you can run a hundred meter dash at some of these meets. But if you're maybe they'll have it shorter, fifty or sixty meters. But Besides the point, say in like a seven or eight year old, it's interesting because, again, I don't have much scientific evidence behind this, but I'm just thinking purely off of the anecdotes of, of who I've trained. I see, you know, some of those young ladies do have that, do display that blade hand position. And I don't know, I'm trying to think of there's an eight year old boy I work with that is the fastest. I think he won nationals in the 400. He's, he's, the fastest young man I've probably ever seen. He doesn't display that hand action, but then thinking of some of the fastest girls that I work with or have seen or just watched at meets do display that hand position. And then as they progress in age, like even at the middle school level, I don't feel like you see much dominance of that hand Mm -hmm. position. And then certainly at the high school level, certainly beyond that, I think it becomes less and less common. The struggle for me or the the question for me as a coach then is at what point do we help the athletes make an adjustment if necessary? That is a question that I get oftentimes from athletes because, um, for instance, I have a 14-year-old boy. He actually just turned 15. He ran an 11.03 last year, which is all things considered, and he's a football first type of guy. That's a pretty darn good time, and he's got a a pretty darn high ceiling that I think that's going to keep improving. He had asked me the question. And for me, it's, you know, it, it it becomes a challenging scenario of going from that age, you know, because I think it's like anything else. If we see somebody excelling at the seven-year-old level, then what we try to do is make the rest of our seven-year-olds do that. 
And then mm-hmm. they're still doing that when they're 17 yeah. and they don't buy on the same things that they did when they're seven. And now we're either working backward or running our head against the wall. Why the improvements aren't coming as much as they were. So I don't know that I have a firm answer. The one thing that I could say for me is I just really tread lightly on the, on the cues and words that I use. We do a lot of experimenting as you had kind of alluded to with different hand positions and seeing how the foot interacts with the ground. And just like I'm going to talk about with the skips and the gallops, it's just another, it's just another theory of mine, or it's just another opportunity of our students to be able to experiment with something and then hopefully come out of that experimentation with the ideal model if that makes sense. So try a few things. And then generally, I hope the athlete's body and mind comes out of that with the most ideal model of, of how they're going to sprint to the best of their ability. Yeah, that, that's a good answer. And I think that I asked that with kind of the thought that there's, <laughs> like you said, there's not the ideal answer for everybody because you you see the fast kid or the fast girl doing that at age seven, you try to teach all the girls. And then there's st- like you said, they're still doing it when maybe they should have switched to a strategy that was a little bit more, you know, I guess if having the fingers splayed is like a, I would call it like a stiffness strategy. Like uh, Andre, if Andre de Grasse, he's like p- super elastic, right? Like if, if he's using that or it wouldn't you not Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt has more of a relaxed hand in front, but Johan Blake, like he sprinted uh, with more of a, a high hip stiffness strategy as well. And it's, uh, it's just interesting to think, I guess, about, yeah, how yeah. does someone self-select the ideal over time? It would be cool, I think, to watch like that seven-year-old girl or eight-year-old girl, you know, every couple of years, like just kind of not say anything to about what she's doing with her hands, but just kind of notice what changed, you know, like if she eventually changed to a, like a softer hand in the front side or something like that, possibly, or, or didn't, what was changing, what might have brought that about and asking the questions versus... Or, or or just presenting athletes, hey, try to sprint with your hands like this. What happened? And uh, Sorry, the last thing. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll let you go ahead. I had another thought, but I'm getting carried away myself here. Oh, you're good. Yeah, I, I think it would be interesting to see. I think it was Dan Paff that said a few years ago, I mean, it's not a earth-shattering strategy or idea or thought process, but very few, very few of those athletes at the young uh, middle school or high school level are going to accomplish the same levels of success at the elite and, you know, college or post-grad level. Um, and that's not surprising for a variety of reasons, but it would be interesting to see if we've had, you know, if there's been any of those athletes that have found success at the elite level, at the elite level that also started track really young and, you know, was dominating everybody from that point on to the point that they're at at their elite level. If we could watch video or see kind of what they did, that would be interesting to see the the progress or the, you know, the changes made over time. And it would be even better to hear from their coaches to hear if there were any you know, manipulations made or, or what have you. Um, another thing too, you mentioned two non-American sprinters. And what I see oftentimes with American sprinters, especially the ones that I work with, I mean, it, it, I haven't had the opportunity to work with the elite of the elite sprinters, but at least at the middle and high school level, we've seen some, some success. Most of those student athletes, their primary sport is football, is American football, or they came from American football or they're transitioning out of American football, whatever it may be that, um, American and now American football, you then also talk about different, like that's, that's the great study for me based off different positions and what their expectation is going to be on a, a play-by-play basis. You have more kind of force driven athletes. You're, you're more power running backs, linebacker types inside the box type guys. 
Um, and you have your more twitchy velocity based guys, maybe on the outside, outside receivers, cornerbacks, what have you that have different strategies as well. Those guys that are the young athlete that I had mentioned is a running back in particular, and he's a pretty stocky kid. He's more of a kind of, you know, he, he excels in the weight room. That's kind of kind of cat he is. Those types seem to rely more on the weight. And I don't know if it's rely. I think it's just they're, they're very force-driven. They're tightly wound. That we see more common. But, again, this is just a few examples that I've had the athletes that find more long-term success in track and field are those kind of outside guys, those taller, longer receivers, those taller, longer cornerbacks that tend to tend to rely on a little more conventional hand position, at least that you would see at the, you know, elite level. So it's, again, it's an interesting case study case by case, of course, but it's an interesting thing to think about and and consider. Yeah. I I think about it a little bit sometimes when working with athletes who have they have a really big engine in like their hips and their legs, but then they're, when you get to their feet, they just have very little like strength and proprioception. And I've kind of thought of it as well in the sense of you have like almost two engines in the body and each has a particular amount of horsepower. And when you're going to go run, you're going to use the engine with the more horsepower. So if my hips have 500 horsepower, my feet have, I mean, this is not really how everything's more, much more interconnected than this, but if my feet have 200, let's just say, well, I'm going to go with the 500 power or 500 horsepower engine when I actually run, and then the hands and everything else is probably going to reflect the going with the bigger engine, if that makes sense. And like someone like a like a DeGrasse or a Johan Blake, like you said, like they they have this fascial connectedness that they've built over a long period of time and relied on for a long period of time. And and same thing with I think like a like a seven or eight year old girl, like obviously hasn't been squatting or like playing football and doing a lot of power like power style running like their engine is that fascial connectedness and i i I do think too uh, this is maybe just a few anecdotes but i'm starting to notice with younger athletes like i'll watch their hands when they do different drills and a lot of times i won't say anything about the hands but if they're doing a drill that requires like a level of stiffness with the feet i want their feet to hit the ground a certain way and make a certain shape and there has to be a level of rigidity there Good athletes, their hand will instantly take on, on the same side, so if it's their left foot, that left hand will take on the shape that the foot's trying to make. It's like the body's trying to use that hand to fully connect itself. And athletes who aren't quite as good, just their hand just doesn't do anything. It just kind of, it's it's like this this inner body connectedness too, in addition to where's your engine. Yeah, you know, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that or any. No, that I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a very valid point. I think especially in skips, you know, the the whole list of of locomotive locomotive plyometrics. I, I feel like the same thing is kind of displayed, and that's that's another reason why we've looked at skips, gallops, hops, bounds for you know the more force driven type of ideals would be you know more maybe for height, especially power skips for height, power skips for distance. And we can also do the same things for speed as well, whether it be speed over a given distance or speed on ground contacts and just being kind of an internal process for the athlete to think about. And you see their hands oftentimes change and dictate um, exactly what they want to get out of that movement. So again, I don't know if I have like a, a firm, firm answer on that other than I agree and I've seen many of the same things. And, you know, that's that's largely why we'll try to kind of vary the process or vary the movements that we apply through our programming. But it's definitely something that I see working with athletes from five years old to 25. Um, and you see that that I haven't had anybody that I've trained over that course yet, but 
certainly, you know, middle to high school level and even into college, there's, there's been changes that athletes have made. And, you know, for, to the naked eye, to somebody that doesn't, you know, they're not having a conversation, just fans or parents that aren't having conversations like we're having right now, probably won't even see it. But yeah, you know, when you really think deep, there's definitely something there, in my opinion, something to look at, something to think about. Yeah. One of the reasons I asked that too, as like an early question in, in this series was along with the, you know, we're going to be getting into this, the power skips and the gallops and things like that. And even if you take a step back into like the, when I watch athletes or videos of athletes doing like the marching skip, skip type stuff or the very vertical, yeah, you know, skips and all that type of thing. Yeah. Usually if the athlete is coordinated with and connected, you will see the rigid hand show up for that stuff pretty significantly because yeah. that's a, just a vertical stiffness strategy. And my question right. always at that point is more like, okay, well, if you do that when you're marching, but then you don't do it when you're sprinting and your sprinting is pretty good. Like even like, look at Usain Bolt, right? Like, or like the best in the world, they don't necessarily use that rigid hand strategy. Some do, some don't. So I'm always thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm just, maybe it's just the process of asking questions, you know, like what strategy are you actually using when you run? Where can we shore up weaknesses? What benefit is this drill giving you if your main running might not look like that? And of course, when you're jumping, though, if I'm jumping, that's where if I'm a high jumper jumping off one leg or a long jumper or anything like that, you're going to see all the crazy hand positions come out for sure without 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 exception. You know, so you need it to be multilateral, obviously, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And really, some of the best do those things. I mean, seriously, I've got, I've got a couple athletes that, you know, maybe they're not quite as gifted genetically as some of the higher level athletes I have, but definitely there's one, the best, I mean, the best triple jumper I've ever coached was a near 48 footer in high school. And he just did some really, really weird things um, (laughs) presented themselves in, in his hand. And, and it's just one of those things. It's one of those things that if, if we're not like, if we're not slowing video down or if we're not looking specifically at hand position, it looks like the most fluid of fluid athletes. And it still is done very fluidly and very naturally. But when you slow it down, you surprise people based off the amount of rotation, the degree of rotation, the very, again, very, very weird things that happen um, at the hands and arms when we're, when we're going through those movements that it's, you know, again, I can only, I can only speak to the the group that I've worked with and, and you really, you really do see some things, some interesting, interesting things, excuse me, happening at the hands. And I don't, I don't know that I certainly, certainly everybody doesn't do the same thing. You know, high level athletes, you, you see certain things like I, we had the opportunity to go to Adidas nationals this year for, you know, some of our young athletes made it to that level. And I just, I just, freaking love triple jump man like mm-hmm. you see what some of these young men and women do and what you did see in the final and this was something that i spoke with our our young athletes and actually i had a young coach of mine that is an awesome guy and, and helps so much but just kind of try to use it as an educa- educational opportunity as well not just for myself but for him you look at those eight or nine guys whatever it was in the final there and a lot of them had some commonalities they were quite long uh, long-limbed calves were dang near to their knees, high hips, very, you know, a lot of them displayed that. And then there was one young man that was, you know, maybe he was probably still five eleven, six foot, but much more rocked up type dude, more looked like he spent some time in the weight room and, you know, probably more power-based. 
but you do see those commonalities. And then as a coach, you know, just to kind of bring my own insight, I guess, as a coach, you just kind of try to find a way to, you know, in, in my scouting slash recruiting strategy of trying to get kids in the right events, just speaking track and field, but same could go on a position by position thing, regardless of sport. You know, you try to find the right situation for the kid based on what their genetic makeup is. Um, you try to find what the most common strategy of the high level performers do. And you don't just automatically apply that to everybody, but maybe there's some things that you you take with you. And again, with the hand positions, with the different skipping strategies, okay, you know, if eight out of nine finalists at nationals do this with their hands, maybe at least introducing it to the bulk of our athletes will be helpful. And maybe when we go back to it, they resort back to their normal hand action. And that's because it's what's right for them. Or maybe they adopt it into their next rep whenever we're on the runway. And all of a sudden, it looks and feels right. It probably won't happen on their first rep. But eventually, maybe that's something that they adopt. Or maybe it's somewhere in the middle or somewhere along that continuum that's you know, just the right fit for the athlete and what their, you know, anthropometric makeup is, whatever, whatever it may be, that might be what makes it the best fit for them. You know, it might be somewhere along the lines of that. So that's, again, my kind of insight, I guess, to put a a bow on it is, is try to take little things and introduce it to the, the entire cast of your athletes and, and see kind of what they, what they take from it. Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out Performance Herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs' flagship products, Pine Pollen, for free. Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Empire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chiliagit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You can check those out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you, which is that you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse that is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix Formula. And you can get that for free uh, along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, yeah, a good bow to put on there. I mean, again, it's so much of it is questions, exploration, letting athletes problem solve, not getting hung up on one thing. But like you said, looking at the trend, if eight out of 10 athletes are doing this at the nationals, maybe we should explore this. You know, like I, I just think that's a good way of putting it versus this is the ultimate hamp is it, you know, like this strategy is the ultimate strategy. Well, like, no, there's, there's different strategies you can utilize. And ultimately the one that's going to be the most successful is the one that's optimal one for you but i should at least expose you to all strategies and allow you to work with all strategies on some level and you ultimately will find the best one for you yeah sorry to interrupt and in in, in an ideal scenario i know that coaches come in many different makes shapes and sizes and you know obviously we get to a point we'll get to a point in our coaching career and athletic career that we're probably not able to do some of the things that we're able to at this point or certainly i can't do things that i was doing five years ago and I expect five years from now, hopefully not much, but I'm going to be unable to do some things that maybe I'm doing now. But um, in an ideal scenario, testing some of those things out ourselves is, I think, the ideal way to put yourself in the athlete's shoes. Because, again, there's some things that I do now as a strategy of movement that I didn't do 10 years ago because I wasn't thinking of any of these things. 
but also again, just as many ways or in any way that we can kind of have put ourselves in the shoes of the athlete and, and try out some of those things ourselves. I think that's a, a really good adoption strategy of our coaching methods, but also as athletes ourselves and, and trying it out on ourselves, we're going to, we're going to realize that a different hand position feels more comfortable for us, a different, whatever strategy it may be is going to feel more comfortable for us. And yeah, of course that's going to be the same for the athlete. Yeah. I think it's easy for sports performance coaches, strength coaches, feeling the weights and muscle tension is a given. You, you've done that for your whole life, but feeling elasticity is a little bit different for a lot of people. And yeah, like you said, you have to go through, even if it's just skipping, even if it's just skipping and notice what your hands did, you know, and try to be quicker off the ground and notice what changed in your body. And just, you don't have to even, you don't have to be a master of it. You don't have to know it, you know, inside and out, but you at least should be familiar with these things. And I think it's a good, it's a good segue in getting into the skips and gallops because I think that, and and one of the reasons I asked the the hand thing earlier is just that I think it really highlights body connection and elasticity. And I'm I'm sure the more you coach and implement skips and gallops, especially and and bounding as well, but I think it depends on the level of the bounder um, with with what you see. But the skips and gallops, I I think that is just such pure elasticity. You see it in the body, the hands, the takeoffs. And we got into those things last time a bit. I was going through our last show. I was like, oh man, especially with what you've been posting recently, I know we could talk about this just a ton more. So I'll leave this first question a little bit open-ended, but Take me through how skipping and galloping first evolves as athletes move from their early years with you, like elementary, middle school, and then into their more high performance uh, later on in high school. Cool. Um, and I think I think a big thing with all of these movements, but also a lot in my training and programming strategy, I think I had alluded to it on the last episode, but I really look at our training program, I take on a much greater... Um, motor learning skill acquisition type of approach versus like this is our regimented program and i'm not i'm not saying that programming x's and o's is not important important and essential especially at a certain point in an athlete's life it is but introduction to different strategies and exposure to different movements i think is essential for our young athletes especially the youngest of the young the more that i can expose them to within reason the more variation that I can allow them to explore, I think ideally is going to set them up for later in their career and themselves now in their career now, whatever it is. Hopefully they're just having fun and exploring if they're super young. But definitely even at a high level to professional athletes, I still think there's a necessity of exploration. So the way that cues create the differentiation across those ages, in my opinion, um, in my thought process anyway, uh, thought process is again if if I'm going to want an athlete to take on a more for lack of a better term twitchy strategy I'm probably not going to use any of those words for an eight year old or a twelve year old whatever it may be that's going to be something that I'm going to use later on of of that way of really manipulating the strategy of 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 the same goal or the same movement in mind if that makes sense so if we're going power skips for height. An eight-year-old, I'm just going to tell skip as high as you can. A 24-year-old professional athlete, yeah, we might start with just skip as high as you can. Most of them have probably done a power skip for height in some aspect of their programming in their long career at this point. But then we can then do a little bit more exploration with the older, with those more veteran athletes of, okay, now on this one, 
I want you to keep your hips a little bit higher. I want you to get off the ground a little bit quicker, whatever it may be. Now, for a younger athlete, you might be able to say gallop for height, and then I want you to gallop for height again, but just try to get off the ground a little bit quicker. And generally, they can handle that. I don't know that that's entirely necessary again for that age, though. For the veteran athletes, for the older athletes, um, I think that's where that might come into play. Another thing might be like loading strategy. I see plyometric or those movements in particular for a younger athlete are probably exploration, coordination, just just general a general training method that is available to us as young athletes. And something more, the most important thing of this entire conversation is that skips and gallops are fun. Like I've never seen a kid skip for speed and race another kid and they didn't have a smile on their face. <laughs> like that's a big thing for me. It's, it's big for young athletes, but also maybe you have to like peel back a layer for the older athletes and be like, I haven't skipped since I was in elementary school. I'm too cool for this. Rarely they say that or think that, but again, it's fun. Like if, if I just go out and skip, I enjoy skipping. Like if I tell myself I'm going to do however many yards of skipping, that sounds a lot better than a whole lot of yards of jogging whatever it may be like it's just enjoyable so that's a big piece to me for me as well so i want it to be fun for our young athletes i want them to use it as a again it's a strategy it's a it's something that we can implement that is a coordination challenge um, and for our more veteran athletes then we can look at it and you know under a microscope a little bit deeper as a plyometric activity again i'm not going to use the word plyometric with an eight-year-old i probably <laughs> might not eat with an 18 year old but that's my thought process of programming we can load it we can vary the you know what we want them to do with their hands at their hips whatever it may be um, that we can get a little bit deeper in the coaching strategy but also as a programming strategy again we can load it differently and it taking on a little bit higher level of of programming for that is where I see it kind of change over the lifespan or at least the competitive lifespan. We still do many of the same movements throughout. We're still going to go a nice, easy, I just say like skip in the park for our kids. If it's just kind of like a, you know, introduction skip, I'll do the same thing for a 25 year old professional athlete. Um, we'll still skip gallop for height. I don't think you know, I don't I don't think that there's prerequisites that a young kid has to hit before they can skip or gallop for height. I think that if anything, that should be the prerequisite before moving on to something else. Similarly or contrarily, for a more veteran athlete, you know, maybe a little more caution with regardless, volume has to be, you know, I, I don't I don't think volume should be super high. Volume can be high on the low amplitude ones that take on a little bit more of a kind of extensive approach. Um, but you definitely want to control your volume on power skips for height, especially with those veteran athletes, just because when, especially with our high schoolers, maybe our high schoolers that are like high level track athletes, but by no stretch of the imagination, like elite level athletes, um, a lot of the, the shin and lower limb disruptions come up. So when we go really high volume, especially at the vertical skipping galloping methods, uh, we'll have some lower limb irritation that I think you just have to be cautious of. So kind of introducing volume with other methods might be wise with those athletes. And again, you still want to be cautious with the young athletes, but I've just seen a little bit less on, on that end. So yeah, I think, you know, volume changes a little bit. Cues are, are the big thing that changes over the athlete's competitive lifespan and also just the approach to programming and how we kind of implement different strategies of, you know, whether it be loading or 
differentiating uh, movement strategies uh, is what kind of progresses over the athlete's lifespan. I love it. One of the things I just keep thinking of over and over again in my journey in coaching, especially the last five years and maybe a little bit more, is just the the answers are found in nature. And then I have Uh young kids myself, they're four and six, and then some other trainers at the gym that I work with, they have young kids as well. And you'll watch them and the kids are just like, no one's telling them to do it. Like a four-year-old just is just skips across the gym floor. They gallop across the gym floor because it's fun, you know, and there's, there's, their body is wanting to teach them something too. It's rhythm, it's asymmetry, it's a jump takeoff setup. And what I was going to say was, I, I've been thinking about training a lot on the level of, of maximal intention, maximal efficiency, and maximal fun. And when you do all those things really well, it's just the results take care of themselves on so many levels versus I think sometimes we try to break things down so much and kind of, you could say manufacture things, but I'll just say this, like, like, taking a bunch of kids and having them do a bunch of fun skips or even like throwing like you could even make a story out of it for really young kids like be a kangaroo or i don't know what animal skips i don't think there's any animals that skip because they're quadrupeds but you know for the most part but you know what i'm saying like the more if you just had a bunch of 10 year olds and you had them do all these skipping and galloping drills and, and kind of really got a, a, a fun environment going how much better is that than being like all right we're gonna do this rudimentary single leg you know plyometric and land like this or doing these yeah. double it's just, I mean, and again, not that there's not a place for those things. I think there is like those more extensive traditional plyos, but I just feel like if you're doing the skips and the gallops and all the stuff that kids already do and playing your sport and you're finding different fun ways to do that skip and gallop. And like you said, it's, it is fun. It's this combination of jumping, which is like joy. I feel like jumping personifies joy and running personifies freedom in many ways. And you're like mixing those together and yeah, like smiles are coming out. And uh, so anyways, what I was going to ask you, you, you're getting me a little carried away here on my own train of thought. But with that in mind, with using skips, using gallops, uh, I'd be curious where your what your thoughts are on the role of more traditional, like, hey, we're going to do these double leg pogos or these like single leg extensive hops or things like that. Um, how does that fit in across a- as athletes go through your system? Yeah, there's definitely a place in it, you know, where I see the more kind of rudimentary, like in place hops still a necessity in my opinion those various movements like skips and gallops and hops are in our program throughout the year that doesn't mean we're doing all of them on the same day that doesn't mean we're doing all of them every day but even if it's just our general warm-up before a soccer practice there's going to be some form of skipping and galloping that's going to take place those hops in place i think that's a really good traditional way to accumulate some of that volume again when you go in a little bit more of an extensive method that i think is a good way to prepare the feet ankle and shins for some of these skips gallops hops bounds go on the list that again i think it's i think it's a necessity i think there's also a place for it in between lifts in the weight room whatever it may be but again to me it's not as important as some of those others but i still think there's i still feel as though there's a time and place for them i think you know the varying ways so as the first you know again i like movements to be fun i don't like to like many coaches especially strength and conditioning coaches again i come from a strength and conditioning background like that's that's the profession that i've wanted to be in all of my life i coach track and field as well because i'm lucky to be in a high school setting where you can do both and that is become my baby track is as a, as a sport has always been something that's been really important to me, or at least in my competitive career and coaching as well to this point. 
but I like my, I like my environment. I like our training environment to have a more joyful feel than probably most traditional strength and conditioning coaches take on. Now, if I was at the college level coaching college football, that'd probably be a little bit different, but I'm not. So I want joy to be introduced in our warmup. I want smiles to be introduced in our warmup. So that's a big part of the reason of why we use some of those movements. Just like you said, some of those hops in place can get a little redundant if we, you know, where I see a good spot for them, where I like to use them is actually at the end of a session as kind of just a, you know, closing the envelope of the session and to accumulate some very low level volume that might um, either be, you know, we, I would kind of just label it as a cool down with our kids, but we can accumulate some more of that volume, not have to worry about it taking away from some of the other things that we want to do. And again, that'll, that'll give it, it. I mean, it's like jumping rope, you know, it's like, yeah, that's, that's, why, that's how I look at those movements. I wish jumping rope is more fun, <laughs> I mm-hmm. think, oh, but it, it, that's a little bit tougher of a thing to introduce for our kids. Number one, because of just purely equipment, getting enough ropes, yeah. but also, no, oh, I mean, maybe it's easier than I think to introduce. Cause I've never really introduced jumping rope to a big group, but it just, you know, I think of the challenges of that. It's much easier to just do a fake jump rope. So I guess maybe there's a way to make it more fun. Maybe again, pretend you're jumping rope or whatever it may be. But again, it just hasn't been as, as enjoyable of a strategy. I have seen like when we go, we'll go higher amplitude variations of that. Like some of your more traditional plyometrics again, in the weight room that, you know, in the weight room, it's a little bit of a different setting, different environment. It's not quite as joyful, both in my, um, my approach to it, but also the kids and how they feel in there, I think. So it's a little bit more discipline or, or less, again, just less smiles. But when we, that's where we have some issues of accumulating a little, a little too much volume to be candid with you that, you know, I've seen some of those shin pains, like a lot of our, I really love testing RSI. And I don't know that, you know, I necessarily have the most scientific evidence uh, behind it, but I like testing RSI just to see how the athletes, if for no other reason than to get an RSI score and record slow-mo video and be able to look at how they accomplish the the, the, the best RSI score they can possibly accomplish. Um, and for no reason, that, other reason than that, I really like it. But we did, when we, when we were really testing quite a bit, we had some just shin discomfort. So I would just say tread lightly, be careful with that, um, the volume there, but we do like to do some of those movements as well. Yeah. I like the idea of, um, like what you said, um, well, first you, you had mentioned when I said the answers are found in nature, I was totally forgetting about like kids. I think especially girls, you know, we talk about like the, you were saying like the girls and the elasticity strategy and, and, you know, kids who are like eight years old using that. And I think about um, like my daughter loves to actually jump for some reason. I, I have no impact on this. I mean, not directly. I don't say anything to her about it, but she likes just jumping around on one leg, like at soccer practice. Like if there's a, there's an animal, you have to be an animal. It's a flamingo. Like she wants to jump on one leg. And I think about like girls doing jump rope and hopscot, like the original plyometrics. Right. And I get, um, I do get though, if you, if I had like 40 kids for a class and it's like, all right, get out your jump ropes. Like how much time is going to be wasted by the the equipment rollout, right? Like I, I understand that, but it's, it is interesting. I think about the you know, back before I used to personally, like I, when I was about 15, I, I got this um, jump program called the science of jumping. And it was like, it was kind of shitting on jump roping. Like it's oh a low intensity. It's not helpful, blah, blah, blah. And all up until then I had done a lot of jump roping, even like a ton of single leg jump roping when I was like 13 and 14, I was just obsessed with jumping back then. And 
I think I'd even gotten to the point where I was doing some single leg double unders and things like that or repeated single leg double unders. And it, it was just long story short, I was, um, I was just at the gym yesterday. And I, was, I had to do a quick lift. I was warming up quickly. So I was just doing a lot of different implements and I grabbed the jump rope and I was like, I had in my head, I'm just going to try some single leg double unders again. I'm, you know, I'm 38 now. And I, I could do, I could only do one in a row and then I have to do like five normals and then do another one. And I was like, man, how far off has some of my elasticity gone on this level? But the, it's just that the jump rope is a more fun way to do that. You know, it's like more fun to say, hey, can I get a single leg double under than just, hey, hop around on one leg and try to do these things. Um, or I'll say uh, too, just as I love the finisher mentality, uh, I've been even more and more accumulating my fandom of like just single leg hopping finishers, just difficult, hard calves are burning single leg hopping finishers for the end of the workout i just love that stuff so i I like that yeah what you said there i really agree with that i like that mentality cool yeah yeah that's 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 kind of been my approach to it with the the skips so i'd like to get more into the skips and the gallops and those types of things and you know you had mentioned like when they're when it's kids like you know just let them just let them do it have fun you know skip for height or whatever when does some of the, I guess, I guess you call it constraints start coming in? Like, hey, skip for, skip for distance, skip for height, be quicker off the ground. Like, like those kind of uh, modulations. Uh, what ages does that start coming in? And then what are you, um, what are some of the different constraints or ways to frame it that you're giving to athletes? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'd say, I mean, I work in a school system or work at a private school that, again, I've kind of alluded to it's pre-K through 12. And then I'll have some private clients that are older. They'll come to my speed session, which is a large group that can be any age. Anybody can come to that. So I will see a wide range of, of people um, in the school setting, um, unless you know a family has inquired about private training or something like that. I'll see people from I'll see our students from sixth grade to twelfth. So um, sixth, seventh, and eighth is our middle school. Ninth through twelfth is our high school. It's a it's a pretty simple, the easiest way for me to conceptualize making large and long-standing adjustments in programming is when they hit ninth grade, some things change for for a wide range of reasons. Again, they're they're in they're on a different kind of different campus. Um, I'm seeing them in a different scenario, whether it be before or after school versus the middle schoolers I'll see uh, during our class period. Our middle schoolers are up massive bunch that I'll see high schoolers are still a large group, but it's a little bit more narrow. Middle schoolers are everybody high schoolers for the most part who I see are student athletes across a wide range of sports. So um, not only do the ninth graders, if ninth graders are student athletes and they're interested, they're very interested in athletics. Okay. Now they're, their, their drive is a little bit different than the sixth grader that's just there because, you know, their mom signed them up for a class or whatever it may be. So that's a pretty easy way for me to change a lot of my approach. That also is when we spend, we start to spend a lot more time in the weight room. Again, it's not, it's not necessarily that like, I think something magic happens in, when they're 14, even though it, it does, but that just is a really easy way for me to make some adjustments when they hit high school. So when high school happens, some things changes when we're doing skips, when we're doing skips with the middle schoolers, it's in class, it's a little bit more, um, you know, kind of dexterity based. It's a little bit more coordination minded. It's a little bit more lower amplitude. Again, that doesn't mean that we're not going power skips for height. Um, we still are whatever the movement may, may be. We're cautious in our implementation of bounding. Usually it's more so like bound, uh, hop bound combos where we're hopping five times on our right and then hopping five times on our left continuously. So 
there's one down there. If you catch what I'm mm, saying, yeah. going right, left, and then you say, and I know I'm getting a little bit off track, but hey, that that hop from the right to the left, I won't even use the word bound. I'll say that that transition from your right to your left, I want to be the biggest yeah. jump prep, you know, and then you start to see how an athlete moves through a bound, and then you can minimize the bound, the hops, and introduce more bounds, whatever it may be. When we get to the high school level, um, not only is that when we start to really introduce bounds, but in the hops, uh, in the skips and gallops, rather, that's when we can use slightly different cues to try to excite something in the athlete that makes, uh, that helps them make a change, whatever it may be. Now, um, I shared something, uh, I think it was about a week ago, regardless of when it was, I shared two young athletes, two young women that are both, both have very high level gymnastics backgrounds. One young lady is five, I'm just going to guess here, five, seven or five, eight, one young lady, that's probably five, three, very, very different strategies of doing anything movement wise, different demographic nationality backgrounds, which is, in my opinion, going to probably change some things genetically, just anthropometric makeup. That's going to be different as well. Uh, but one young lady is very, very quick off the ground, very internally rotated, does a lot of things that are, are much more on the, on the velocity end of, of the continuum. Whereas the other young lady, and this is the, the shorter young lady is a little more force driven, a little more externally rotated, does some things really different. So now other coaches have have shared information that can be portrayed and and um, communicated much better than I can. But I think there's ways of going about trying to continue to excite the strengths in those athletes. And there's also ways to excite maybe, I don't want to say necessarily the weaknesses because I don't think it's that, but maybe introduce them to the other way of movement. Um, or at least help them feel the other way of movement that maybe they haven't felt before. Like we're, we innately, I think, move a certain way. And if we are introduced to another way of movement, hopefully we adopt some of those strategies. We're not going to adopt the entire movement strategy of like, I'm a pretty force driven person. I would say I grew up, lived in the weight room for a long time. So I think that's generally what I like to rely on. But if I'm, if I feel myself trying to move in a way that maybe somebody that's a little more um, tendon driven, um, a little more velocity driven, you know, generally I can feel some of those things. Some of those things might apply. Some of those things I might adopt. Um, and some of those things I'll say, that's just, you know, I'll not say, but I'll feel that's just not for me. So the ways of going about that is looking at what somebody that maybe is like when I, when I skip for height or gallop for height, I like to get my back knee darn near close to the ground. Like that's how deep I'm getting mm -hmm. in the flex and extending, um, into those power skips. Whereas if you watch like that, that young man that I mentioned, that was a 48 foot triple jumper and he's, he's at Georgetown now, if you watch what he does, like his hips don't even like it, it looks like he's pretty much standing straight up mm -hmm. when he gets off the ground or really when he makes like, he doesn't, he doesn't, create much generate much depth at all going into his gallops or skips and that's much like the taller young lady that i had shown whereas the other young lady was more similar to me she likes to really get down deep into flexion and use more time on the ground use more of a rolling foot action whereas the other young lady is um, much more forefoot more forefoot excuse me um so for me again this is just using my own training opportunities when i 
think to myself some of those same cues, okay, I want to try power skipping or galloping with higher hips, longer legs, more abbreviated foot contact. Interestingly enough, a little bit different from a hand action standpoint, um, especially power skips. If I'm power skipping for height, I feel like I have, and naturally, I feel like I have a little more open hand strategy. When I go really high effort, high amplitude, um, I start to close a little bit. But similarly, kind of changing the hand strategy has helped me kind of find and explore some things as well. So um, I don't know that I necessarily am going to cue that or if I've cued that yet, but it might be something that happens. But um, in the power skips and gallops, again, gallops are a little bit easier for an athlete to feel what I'm trying to say with those high hips, quick ground contacts. Because if I tell an athlete to gallop for max height, again, especially if I'm, if I'm like training myself again, that, that trail knee or that back knee is going to get. So I'm going to be so deep in flexion. I'm almost to the ground. And some athletes might do the same thing. And if I tell an athlete to gallop, but be as quick off the ground as possible, they find it a lot easier than they do the power skip with much briefer ground contact. So Gallus has been a little bit easier way to introduce it, maybe a little bit easier way to just introduce some of those manipulations. I think because of the gallop, like one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, whereas skipping is a little bit longer. Um, it's a little bit longer of a time frame on the ground. So I found gallops to be a little bit easier to introduce, but yeah, that's kind of how we see it is, is introduce, you know, kind of just, hang something out there for them to get a taste of it. See if they're interested in that movement strategy. Some of them, some of our young student athletes will adopt some of those strategies. Some of them will be like, you know, you'll see them. I'll go, you know, maybe it's gallop for height. What feels natural gallop for height with great depth, squat down into it for you and I talking flexion, use great flexion. I'm not going to necessarily say that to our kids. Um, and then maybe a gallop for height quick, as possible off the ground and then let's go and revisit uh, a gallop for height whatever feels natural and see what comes out of it is that going to be long standing long lasting probably not after one session but maybe if you do that a few sessions an athlete is going to start to feel some things that they didn't before and you know appreciate and like that movement strategy and start to adopt it on themselves so yeah what you were saying with the galloping it makes sense in watching children so in watching my children or other kids their age, they start with galloping. They don't start with skipping. Like my mm -hmm. kids now, like my daughter at six can she and some of the her like soccer teammates probably were here a few years earlier, but she could gallop when she was like three, but it's taken her a few more years to really be able to skip effectively. And it's almost, it's almost like galloping is the first thing. It's like for whatever reason, it's the first, it's a little bit easier. Or maybe it's, there's just less because one side of your body is kind of doing one thing. The other side's kind of doing another, you know, there's not reciprocating it. I don't know, but I know that kids will gallop first, so maybe that's that more natural place to start playing with those variables. I was going to ask you with that, to so like let's just say you have um, an athlete who's a power natural power skipper, or yourself, you know, and and yes, you want to play to your superpower. You don't want to diminish your superpower, but you you want to give them some other things and opportunities. Would you be more inclined to use the gallops as the place where you're going to explore? Say, hey, you're you know usually a power skipper, just say, hey, I want you to be really fast off the ground on some of these gallops or whatever. And then when they skip, kind of let them maybe do more whatever their natural strategy is, or does it not? Um, is there any one? Do you, would you prefer the gallops, or does it not really matter uh, for Absolutely. playing with variables? So, gallops are actually kind of how I mean, I like I stumbled over it 
programming and coaching, but I'm sure coaches have galloped and said to abbreviate your ground contacts over time. Like, it's just like we were using, I was using gallops and, and what happened, it was actually this summer, maybe it was spring break when I started working with this young man, but regardless, besides the point, he's a college football player, American football player, and he's from here. So he was in town training and somebody had referred me, uh, referred him to me um, in terms of just working speed training. And so I'm sure he thought he was going to get like a more, I guess, traditional, conventional speed training program. We had a great few months of training. I thought it was awesome. Um, but when when I first got him, I just I, I could pretty much see when he was like walking out. I knew he was a Division One college football player, receiver. Um, I saw by his body type, though, that it was probably an inside receiver. Anybody that's not like too familiar with American football. Again, this is just kind of a um, a um, generalization, but outside receivers are typically more longer, um, maybe fashionably driven type athletes. Again, that's just kind of how I see it. Inside receivers can be a little bit of anything. Same thing with outside receivers, but inside receivers, maybe a little bit shorter guys kind of like move the sticks inside, find find a hole in the zone, whatever it may be. It's just a little bit different, a little bit different expectation of what's going to happen on the football field. Um, I could see right away working with this young man. He was actually a taller inside receiver, but I could tell he was like really um, externally rotated in how he walked. I was going to, I was expecting long ground contacts. I was expecting um, successful um, early drive phase um, sprinting, probably not, ideal in his max velocity or you know early acceleration sprinting and many of much of that was right um so what i wanted to do with him um early on was try to work on some of those you know kind of the opposite of kind of um working on his superpower and so that's when we were galloping and i was seeing some of those things that he did and then i told him hey what i want you to do on this next one we're going to go gallop for height again but i want you to be as quick as as possible off the ground quick as possible off the ground now all of a sudden his hips started to do a little bit more internal internal rotation um i started to see him do some slightly different things with his arms and hands that again i'm not I'm not going to be able to verbalize that in him going out and running a route and say, I want you to do this when you, you know, make your move. I want you to do this with your hands instead. Like that's that number one, I'm not a, an American football expert, not that I'm a sprinting expert or gallop expert either, but I, I, I would have a much tougher time doing that than telling him gallop for height quicker off the ground. And he took a, you know, liking to that in the session. And I think it was something that, you know, having it stuck with us for a few months was really helpful in his training as well. Um, and a lot of those things, especially again, like abbreviating ground contacts, um, introducing, naturally introducing internal rotation was helpful for him at max velocity when we went to wickets and what have you. And again, that's a hunch. That's an opinion. Um, but I do think some of those things were helpful in working with him. So I have found that gallops have been easy and it can be just, it can be, that was the first session. I, I, he looked good. I said gallop for height. And then the next rep, I told him gallop for height, be quicker off the ground. And that was something that stuck with us. And again, that was something that kind of lasted through our programming uh, with my other athletes as well. The magic of coaching really, it's, it's just finding that, like that constraint, that link that you can put all those <laughs> You know, hey, here here's a great place you can play with all these variables, and especially sure. if it's a, a point. Uh, the idea too, I think, of like you know, not um, 
maybe not trying to like we're <laughs> what am I trying to say here? The point we're being where gallops is a better place and it's actually more non-specific in some ways than reciprocal skipping, but that being the best place to work on those um, those quicker contacts. You know, as I was thinking too with all this stuff, and this is something, a lesson I've been learning the last, I, I guess you could say it's 10 years, is I used to program, you know, back when I was coaching track um, full-time at a Division three school in my 20s, and, and this is where I, I was, you know, training myself with the team, but everything was just power. If you're bounding and we're going to go 25 yards, it's how few bounds can you get there? And uh, you know, every, all plyometrics for the most part, I, I will say I did have a, a contact mat, like a just jump back when just jump did the contact function. I would put it between hurdles or on bounds every now and then just to try to get people quick off the ground. And I, that was in my head, but I didn't, um, I don't think I paid enough homage to those little quick contact movements. Because for me personally, the further I personally got away from them, the worse of an athlete I got, you know, I was getting stronger, but I wasn't able to express it the way I could when I was like 18 or 21. And um, not quite, the, it was just a different way of doing it that was a little more force driven. And, I, you know, I said back to when I could do double unders on the jump rope when I was 14, like that kind of pop. And I just think that and you were even saying too, I, I love that, like, hey, you're going to do five lefts, then a big bound, then five rights versus I think so often it's like, all right, we're going to teach this and it's going to be the power version. It's like, no, everything starts with these little fast contacts and then build it out. And so I was just going to say, I love that, that little um, five left, big bound, five right. In fact, as you were saying it, I was making a note here in my, uh, my paper. And before you had said it was a big bound in the middle, I'd written five less, big bound, five rights. Because I was just guessing that's probably what you're doing. I, just, I love that stuff. I just think that little quick, those little quick hitter ground contacts as the baseline is so important and then building the power off of that. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And that's, that's very much part of our th- thought process in all of those. Yeah. So last thing, I know um, you're getting about to the end of things here with the question list. I wanted to get into bounding. So hopefully we're set up well to get into bounding. Yeah. Um, so let me talk to me a little bit, John, about skips versus bounding. Like when, and I'm in Ohio where they actually don't have triple jump in high school here, which is crazy. You know, I guess oh. you do, yeah, it's crazy. I don't know how many other states like that. I mean, I know javelins like not in a lot of states um, because spearing kids, I guess, you know, an accident or whatever. Right? But I mean, if it's well run, it's, you know, just like discus. Or, and that's besides the point. They don't have triple jump here. It's very sad. You have to do like summer track to do it or whatever. Um, thoughts on when, like, when do you get bounding in, in the mix? Cause obviously kids gallop early, like galloping at age three, you know, they're skipping, they're jumping rope and whatever bounding. You don't see, I don't see too many five-year-olds bounding along intentionally. I, <laughs> none, I should say, but when do you start to incorporate that stimulus and how do you progress it? Yeah. And brief background, I, I, I was a hammer thrower in college. You know, I don't know any, I think Rhode Island, California, there's very few states, and that's why largely hammer throw, I think, at the college level is dominated by many Eastern European mm-hmm. um, athletes. But that that also, I don't know if I spoke to this the last time we were on, but I think that was why, like, triple jump. And, and a lot of this, really, tri- the hammer throw taught me so much about athletic movement and, like, not to use words that kids use often, the kids that I see on a daily basis, not being such a tryhard. Like, mm-hmm. yes. Or if you try really hard on hammer throw, it's probably not going to be very good. If you try really hard on on triple jump, it's probably not going to be very good, at least at the start. Like once you get familiar with the movement and you're doing the right things and you have a a sense of relaxation, but that is is so important. So I think that's why it's become something that has been so interesting to me is in hammer throw, if you really, really try to gun that first turn, 
it, it is not going to set you up well on your second, third, and maybe fourth turn if, if you're a four-turn hammer thrower. Similarly, in triple jump, if you really try to you know overdo that first phase, you're not going to get much out of your second or third um, because of the positions that you set yourself up in. So I think that's why it's become such a, a, a um, an event of comfort to me and an event that I've grown really, really interested in, as well as like that's where you have your freakiest of freaky, in my opinion. And triple jump, like you see the way that some of these athletes move. It is so exciting to see how they move as a movement nerd. I think much like you are, like you get to see some of the ways that these athletes accomplish great feats and the, the ways that are really um, counter, maybe counter to what I would have previously thought would be how an athlete would accomplish great marks in triple jump. But it's a really fun, um, it's a really fun event to dive into. And that is largely where bounding really became an important part to um, our programming and an important um, thing to me to want to introduce to all of our athletes, because I felt as though coming off of our season, I look at track and field again, as a full-time strength conditioning coach at a high school, that happens to receive a stipend and coach track and field in the spring. Um, I still look at track and field as our method of training for, for most of our athletes, for their other sport, that is typically their primary sport. We have very few track and field athletes that they're, they're only there. You know, I've never, I've never had an athlete that I've coached that they've been triple jumping since they were 10. And that's like what they do. You know, it's, it's generally an athlete that comes from another sport and we want to try something regardless of events uh, maybe in the distance running world it's a little bit different maybe they run cross country and carry over but again most of our um our our sprinting events and most of our field events are coming from another sport so i look at track as a method of training for those other sports as well so we like to look at kind of what you know um what they go into the season look like looking like and what they come out of the season looking like not just from a standpoint of progress that they've made in their event but also in the progress that they've made in their other sport whatever it may be and i just felt as though again don't have great data to share with you but i felt as though coming off of a season of triple jump um i saw a lot of our football and soccer athletes basketball athletes in particular um come out of it displaying and and showing really good things so um what was that largely to do with sure the coordination maybe of triple jumping some other things but bounding was a big big part of our programming obviously um it's some it's one of the most specific things that you can do to the event of triple jump um that i thought we we really saw some some success coming off of our season so it was something then that i wanted to introduce to um the, the bulk of our athletes, really most of our athletes and the way that we go, I mean, it's, it's a, I don't want to say a long detailed process. You can also, you can abbreviate that process largely by if an athlete gains comfort with hopping for distance, that's half of the battle. And the way that an athlete, in my opinion, gains comfort with hopping for distance, especially in a way that is going to be a more applicable to bounding. It is a more hind foot or midfoot contact, rolling foot action, getting comfortable with more time on the ground, maintaining posture. So if an athlete can go those five hops on the right, five hops on the left, and have a good bound between, they showed you a bound. They can bound. Now you just have to kind of use the right mental, I'm trying to think of a better word for trigger, but kind of a mental trigger 
um, in a way to help them to understand, feel, and think, okay, I just need to do this repetitively, and then it's going to come together. So generally, the thing that the athletes struggle with, young athletes, really anybody, that they, is disassociating sprinting with bounding. Um, when we go a, um, and the ways that you do that more so more often than not, to me, it happens at the foot. What does an athlete want to do when they're sprinting, especially at upright postures? Generally, it's more four foot, four foot contact, or at least they were really coached to be super four foot, um, and trying to get them out of that for bounding, um, has been a big, um, is kind of the biggest box to check in my opinion in progressing an athlete into bounding and you can do that with hopping so um you can also go through it you know maybe maybe it's an athlete is struggling with finding the right posture or finding a way to get you know the bulk of their um of their body over that foot and you can introduce some different uh bounding methods maybe bounding in place but again i think for young athletes um for like those middle schoolers maybe even younger if if we're hopping, that's a good introduction later on to bounding. And you can throw out some of those, throw in some of those cues of, you know, heel first contact. If they're a little bit more advanced, you know, heel first. And, and really some athletes, it's more heel. Some athletes, it's really more midfoot. But I kind of adopt a coaching strategy of, I don't want to say over coaching, but coaching them out of what they feel comfortable with. So when I say heel first, generally they land in a pretty good position, um, whether they know it or not. So hopping is a good way to introduce it i don't think an athlete needs to be in an advanced method of bounding really until until high school that's not to say that they um there won't be benefit to it i've always been torn on the subject to be honest with you of of triple jump at a young age um and there's i don't know I don't know. It seems like injuries team seem to like spur up in interesting moments and kind of come in bulk, but we actually had a couple of avulsions fractures last year. Um, not extremely serious, but in my two highest level triple jumpers that were eighth graders, that this is making me kind of rethink my thought process of maybe we're introducing that a little bit too early to them. And especially when you're going with an athlete, one was a young man, one was a young woman. Um, at different stages of puberty, at different stages of again, I'm, I'm I'm not the most expert scientist, especially on on you know the body, but um, I feel like, I just felt like there was something to that. Why did our two highest level bounders and triple jumpers have that issue arise? So again, that's that. This is me talking in circles because it's something that I'm still thinking about. But I think hops are a good way to go for young athletes. I think once an athlete hits the level again, it's just really easy for me to say when we're in high school. When we're in high school, we introduce our our bounding introduction. So they're still going to go through the same. They're not going to just show up day one and I'm going to say, okay, go bound. And they're going to look at me like I'm crazy. We're going to go through our hop progression. We're going to go through hop bound combos. So again, five hops for distance on the right, bound five hops for distance on the left. Okay, now whether it be in the next session, next rep, whatever it may be, maybe three hops on the right, three hops on the left, three hops on the right, three hops on the left. Now you have three bounds there as opposed to one, uh, two hops on the right, two hops on the left, two hops on the right, two hops on the left, whatever it may be. You can, you can go through that ad, ad nauseum. Um, and then again, eventually you're taking away the hops. You're introducing more bounds. Um, if they're able to display that they're, they're ready to bound in my opinion. So, um, 
hopefully that answers the question. I don't know if you had something a little more specific that I didn't, I didn't touch on there. Um, you know, the main things that I see them struggle with again is the foot contact where they ought to contact the foot. Um, you know, that's probably the same. Oh, one more thing. Like when I'm with hops, some of the, some of the variations or I guess constraints that we'll go through with hops where you really see, and it becomes a really good teaching point in my opinion is tell a kid hop for speed from, we do all our warmups because I have really large groups. Generally, I'll just spread everybody out on the sideline, football sideline. We have a turf field. So all the, all the hashes and all the lines are already um, permanently painted. Um, so we'll go sideline to hash, which I don't know, is about 15 yards or so. Um, and maybe I'll tell them, okay, hop from the sideline to the hash as fast as possible. Generally what's going to happen. The athlete's foot contact is probably going to be more forefoot. Um, they're going to be, have a little more inclined forward posture. Um, some things maybe that show and represent a little more acceleration based mechanics. Um, and then I would tell them, okay, now hop for distance and see what it looks like. I probably wouldn't throw out the cues before they hop for distance. It might be something that I would cue after. Maybe we do a couple reps and we do it again with the new um, altered uh, mechanics. But when a kid is hopping for speed, again, what's going to naturally feel right for them um, is going to be, again, more inclined posture, um, more forefoot contact where we hop for distance if they're doing it right they're going to be a more heel slash hind foot midfoot contact more upright posture um taking more time on the ground again if that's just like you said with your bounds i tell them to get to the hash in as few hops as possible an athlete that's doing that right is going to make more hind foot contact than forefoot um so again if we're if we're introducing bounds in the method that usually i introduce them for which is maybe an introduction to triple jump, something that's done a little more for distance. Um, that's where we're going to want to see the athlete make contact. So that's just been something that's been helpful to us in, in introducing it. And, and again, kind of just finding a way to, um, you know, not necessarily verbalize what I want to say, but hope the help the athletes feel what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I really, I really love that. Um, just solidifying the four, the single leg hopping before you get into the bounding. I feel like if you make the jump just to bounding too fast, you you could do it without really in, engaging the foot properly, and then it just you know you might have to compensate by trying to drive your knee extra or something like that. And so I, I really, and then as well talking about like, hey, we're going to single leg speed bound and make it a race and make it fun, and then bring in the distance, like that velocity first thing that you know, we were just talking about, like. Whereas before, like everything I used to see was all power. How far? How? And I get there's a good place for that, but always at the the starting point of like good control and being able to do something fast and quick, and then building it out. I I like that. I think the kids would love it too, like a race first, and then I'm mean, sure they'd think it's all fun. But you know, doing that race though is is such a dynamic stimulus. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's again, I like to introduce something that's going to be enjoyable for them first, and generally that's something that they have fun with. Um, sometimes we'll even hop backward and obviously that's going to change the mechanics of the foot. Yeah. <laughs> Get a good laugh because the kid's usually going to probably take a tumble. Um, that more often than not, you know, if you have 60 kids out there and you're hopping backward, whether it be for speed distance, whatever it may be, yeah. chances going to take a fall. Um, not that that's what I'm trying to do, but it's, uh, it generally just brings a couple more smiles out. Oh, I'm is, sure. <laughs> 
I'm I'm sure everyone's laughing when that athlete inevitably falls backwards and trips. I was gonna. Do you notice that um, the backwards the people really good at backwards hopping are better at bounding for distance? Because I just think about like early stance, like backwards movements are more. You know, if we go into like the compression expansion, early mid late stance world, the the backwards stuff in my mind is more early stance. I've had people who struggle to get the foot flat on the ground, the heel on the ground, and bounding, and I'll also I'll. Or just hopping, and then I'll just turn them around and have them go backwards. Usually, just double leg at first or single, and that seems to help them. I'm just curious if you had thought and or seen any correlations. You know, big groups, kids that can do it well backwards, going on one leg, and then being able to turn around and bound forwards a little bit better. Or uh, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I feel like that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Um, and you know, there was a time definitely in. 2020 to 2021 not that i've not that i've left this out now um but i really tried to like um dive into more backward movements and what i definitely did see i don't know if we can just chalk it up to them being better athletes you know just having a better gene pool but yeah definitely i would say the athletes that did things well backward um you know those hops backward did you know more often than not were our better bounders i'm trying to think of a very specific example but i I mean really you can do and the thing is like the beauty is pretty much everything that you can do forward you can do backward and it's gonna basically reverse the order at least what happens at the foot without me taking 20 minutes to think about the entire body and what's happening but at least what's happening at the foot with making a toe first contact and then rolling backward which is something that often has to happen if you're moving backward um is is definitely something that i like to introduce and again you can you can do it any which way i haven't personally introduced like hop bound combos with our athletes backward but i've done it in my own training it's fun it's uh <laughs> it'll burn up your anterior tib um which you know might be something that could be helpful for um our young athletes especially again in that kind of shin discomfort maybe doing some things more backward um but yeah i've seen some value in a lot of that in my own training um and i to be honest with you i don't have an answer for why i haven't introduced it yet i think maybe because it'd be just a little complicated and we'll have even more kids falling on their back you know (laughs) I obviously don't want anyone to get hurt. <laughs> and they, uh, none of us do, but it is it is always, we can't help but chuckle for that kid that does backwards skipping, backwards hopping. Of course, yeah. Um, and it's the best when it's the kid that's like too cool for everything, you know? <laughs> but generally that, that peels back a layer, almost always, you know? And it, 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 you got to crack the code of these kids and what makes them tick. Um, and more often than not, if we can do that, that's that's my ultimate objective in working with kids is, help them to have fun, help, help me to understand them and which, uh, you know, which buttons to push more importantly, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too deep here, but more importantly in being an educator and a person that's working with young people, I want them to, um, uh, you know, mentorship is very important in working with young athletes. So the more opportunities we have to peel back those layers and get to know the kid and who they are at a deeper level. Um, if we, we can use this, crazy fun thing that we do of strength and conditioning and coaching track and field to help, you know, set a kid up for a, you know, success in life. And more importantly, teach them how to treat other people. Right. I think that's a really, really cool thing. And that's why I value our position so much. So um, the more opportunities we have to do that is um, freaking awesome. And, and I welcome those opportunities. So if that means hopping backwards and making them fall and getting a laugh out of it and having a conversation after, 
um, so be it, you know, um, obviously Lord willing, they don't get hurt or anything like that. That's a, that's, that's something that I'm always welcoming. Yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap it up too. I, you know, there's a few other little questions or nuances I could ask you about bounding, but I, we've covered so many good things, John. And man, it's been really great talking to you. I, I just love the the elasticity, the speed, and the power that blend, and how those skips and bounds and gallops is bringing that out and and doing it in a fun way. It's just really cool to talk about. So, thanks, man, for your time. Uh, where can people um, you know find you on you know social media or anything? If you have any more resources on bounding or uh, any anything else if you want to share that and then we'll be done yeah i appreciate it on instagram is best um coach underscore garish g-a-r-r-i-s-h um i do have a bounding resource that i completed about a year ago um just with a lot of a little more detailed introduction to how we go through that process of again i can i gave you a three minute spiel of hop bound combos that's uh just part of maybe again if there's some more um you know uh, you know, more detailed, uh, concerns or issues that an athlete's having some kind of, um, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but a little bit more in detailed introduction and and progression, um, to bounding that might be helpful to, to some coaches that are looking of how and why they want to introduce it. I'm also going through a lot of our skip gallop. That's my goal for basically these next few months is to go through our skip gallop progressions. Um, and share them all through there. So I don't know if I'm going to put that. Basically, what I do is put those together and make a course out of it and speak over it. So um, there might be something coming there as well. But I think you might be able to get everything you want out of those Instagram videos that I've been posting. Just my kind of putting all my thoughts out there of why we skip, why we gallop, how we go about it, what it might, what athletes it might be right for or not necessarily right for yet. So I would say definitely Instagram is the best bet. And if anybody has any questions, DMs, of course, always open. Again, it's coach underscore G-A-R-R-I-S-H. Awesome. Well, thanks again, John. I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, Joe. It was awesome, man. Thanks so much for tuning in. Awesome to have you listening. I'm glad you could be a part of all this and we'll see you next week. Have a good one.